Welcome to Taking Back Control, where we uncover the myths and break down the nuances around gender-based violence. This is a space where we talk to advocates and professionals in the field to truly understand what their role is and ways we can help detect, prevent, and move towards the goal of ending gender-based violence. We believe that it is never too late for survivors to take back control of their lives, and the first step is shining a light on this all-too-common subject. I am your host, Christina Jones. Let's get ready to take back control. This podcast will discuss gender-based violence and may be distressing. We invite you to pause if you feel overwhelmed. Professional advocates are ready to help at the National Domestic Violence Hotline, 800-799-SAFE. That's S-A-F-E, and at the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-HOPE, that's H-O-P-E. You all are so going to enjoy today's episode. I have an amazing co-host, Alicia Nichols, Deputy Director of the National Resource Center on Domestic Violence and Firearms. One of my favorite BWJP colleagues has come to join me. Alicia, welcome to Taking Back Control. Christina, I the sentiment is the same. I just adore you. I, I am so, so happy to be here with all of you today for a really, really important conversation. And Christina, before we get started, I would love to tell you and the audience a little bit more about who we are at the National Resource Center on DV and Firearms and share some stats with you before we queue up our guest speakers. So Absolutely. Excellent. Let me tell you who we are. And um, later on in the podcast, you'll be able to figure out where you can find us as well. So at the National Resource Center on Domestic Violence and Firearms, we our goal is to prevent domestic violence related firearm homicides, provide quality practice and policy expertise, and most importantly, to build the capacity of individuals and organizations to proactively address domestic violence and firearms, protecting domestic violence victims from gun violence. You know, Christina, one of one one of the things that we we do the most is respond to communities in the aftermath of a tragedy. And that's mm. not where we want to be. We want to be able to, yes, utilize the criminal and civil justice systems to provide safety and respite to survivors, but we also want to figure out what the root causes of the violence are in the first place so that we can Absolutely. more permanently intervene. So with that, and we'll talk much more about that with our panelists today, but let me share some statistics with you about how prevalent uh, domestic violence and firearm violence is um, in our in our society today. So we know that according to the CDC in 2019, there were 39,707 firearm related deaths in the United States. Christina, wow. girl, that's 109 people dying from firearm related injuries each and every day. One is too many. I know you agree with Absolutely. me. We also know that firearms are used to commit more than half more than half of all intimate partner homicides in the United States. Mm. And Christina, it breaks my heart, but it is the reality of where we are. And again, why this conversation is so difficult. As black women, I know that we are committed to, to helping our, our communities. And according to the CDC, black and American Indian and Alaska native women experience the highest rates of homicide. And over wow. half, over... 55% of those homicides are related to intimate partner violence. 
Wow. Are there, it, is there any reason for Black women to be victimized more than other populations? Like, do we know? Christina, that is a great question, and it was one I was hoping would come up. And yes, and I know that you are a fan, and I hope that after today that our listeners will dive into this um, reading as well. Dr. Kimberly Williams Crenshaw coined a term um, known as intersectionality. And essentially what intersectionality is, is it's a framework used when we're exploring an issue through multiple oppressive lenses. Examples of these factors can include gender, sex, race, class, sexuality, religion, disability, which we most certainly know, right? Impact communities mm -hmm. of color are impacting black women are inner impacting native women and others. And we haven't even talked about all of the other folks who live in the margins and on the fringes of society and who are at risk of violence. But this gets us to the answer as to why. And with that, I am so excited for us to get started with taking back control because I know that our two amazing guest speakers today have lots to say about this. So with that, let's go. All right, so Alicia and I are here, and we have the pleasure to speak to both Lashana Thompson L and Tiffany Garner. Lashana is from Cure the Streets, um, that is the DC office of the Attorney General's Violence Interruption Program, where she is the co chief. And Tiffany Gardner is the Community Violence Initiative State Manager for Giffords Law Center. And we are super excited to have both of these amazing Black women on Taking Back Control. Alicia, I think we did a Black Girl Takeover. Oh, most definitely we did. <laughs> and it has been a long time coming. So uh, Tiffany and Lashana, can you all introduce yourselves? Let us know. Um, what you all do and where you work. And we will start with Lashana. Thank you so much for having me, Christina. Thank you, Alicia. And thank you to the Battered Women's Justice Project for hosting this conversation. I'll just say a, a little bit about my personal background because I was born and raised here in DC. I'm a Washingtonian. I grew up in Ward 8. And I started my work at the DC office of the attorney general through restorative justice. I was a restorative justice facilitator. So I worked with adjudicated youth, youth who were being arrested or charged for harm that they have caused in the community. And my goal was to have them to sit down with the person that they harm and facilitate a dialogue with them and allow them to resolve the issue without uh, incarceration, arrest or prosecution. And after uh, doing restorative justice work, I went on to work with the Cure the Streets program. We started out with two programs. Uh, we facilitate gun violence prevention in neighborhoods that have been plagued by gun violence here in DC. And so we grew from two programs to six programs. And now we're in six distinct neighborhoods in DC where we work in target neighborhoods to interrupt gun violence, mediate conflicts, try to change community norms around gun violence. And we have, again, six teams, 60 people, six neighborhoods, and we're this year working on expanding to 10 neighborhoods. And so we'll have 10 sites. So I help to provide the oversight to the community-based organizations that employ Cure the Streets, which is a gun violence prevention program that uses a public health approach to gun violence prevention. And it's an international model 
And um, it was started by a medical doctor, Dr. Gary Sluckin. If people want to learn more about the program, it's called Cure Violence Global. But again, Cure the Streets is sort of like our spinoff, DC's version of that program. So that's what I do. I get to work with the great men and women on the front lines who are working every day to interrupt conflicts that lead to gun violence. And I help to provide oversight to make sure that they stick to the model, you know, make sure that they have what they need to be able to do a good job. Um, like I said, grew up here. So any questions you want to ask me about, you know, what it's like to be a Washingtonian in 2021 or any other questions you want to ask me about the program, I'm super excited to have this conversation. All right. And thank you, Lashana. I'm just glad to share space with you. And hello to everybody. I'm Tiffany Garner working at Giffords Law Center. Um, I currently am with my role at Giffords. I work as a community violence initiatives manager, which is where I spend time working in different states on trying to advocate for funding, um, funding at the state level so that programs on the grounds, while the grassroots groups or some of the local organizations can tap into dollars to help fund the work to stop violence. Um, so uh, I've been at Giffords for about two years working in the states. Um, the one, the, my key states I work in is North Carolina, Maryland, Pennsylvania, done some work in Connecticut and branching into DC to kind of see what we can do to advocate and support um, some of the work there. But my real thing I want to share about my background is I just come into this space, just my, my roots come um, as a counselor working with children working with uh, families who have been experiencing domestic violence. And that is where I saw my exposure to community violence, the intersection of how DV shows up in spaces where there's also um, a community laden with violence and how people deal with the trauma and the load of that. So I really come to the space really representing that, although my current role is to help with funding, but just bringing that hopefully to the conversation to share with Ms. Lashana and, and just kind of see, uh, share with you all some of our experiences and what can help our you know, black women in our community. So glad to join you all. Thank you so much to both Tiffany and Lashana. Again, I just echo what my colleague Christina has said. I am so, so grateful that you both are sharing your time with us. And I just am so grateful. And it gives me so much hope to know that you two are out there doing this incredible work. And so I won't waste any more time. Let's get right into this, um, what I know is going to be an incredible conversation and very informative. So Tiffany, if I could start by asking you a question of, can you share with us how prevalent are firearm related assaults and homicides in the Black community? Yeah, I can share a few things that I know that you all have shared some some great stats on, you know, at the beginning of our podcast here. Um, so I just want to start off by saying we understand this combination of intimate partner violence, domestic violence, access to firearms. That's a really deadly mix. I know we're not really, um, you know, just kind of looking at how this is a public health um, situation. Um, one of the stats I will share with you all, and just to kind of add on to what was already shared, is that 46% of all women that are killed in gun homicides are killed by their current former intimate partners. And so we're just looking at like the prevalence of um, firearms. I wish we could capture fully what is really there. I mean, we could see from some stats when we kind of really look at what's happening with the mix of DV in the world and in the mix, but we really can't capture fully um, how prevalent firearms are um, outside of just those just those stats that are shared because there's there's that thing that you know our communities we don't we may not always talk about or report 
what's really going on when it comes to assaults or when it comes to um, obviously the homicides get reported, but the assaults, those are the missing pieces of the data that we need to capture more. So we can see some snapshots, like I said, from what you guys shared, but so much that we don't know about how truly prevalent this is. And that's a great point, which uh, takes us really to our next question. So uh, Dr. Beth Ritchie is an amazing, amazing uh, Black woman who's doing some great research out in the field. And one of the things that she coined back in 1985 was the concept of the trap of loyalty. And this is specifically for Black women. Um, and it talks about the racialized and gender loyalty, which is a set of cultural mandates that exploit women's emotional commitment to their intimate relationships and the members of their household and how unique that trap of loyalty is to black households. And that we just, you know, we, we as black women are really kind of trained to protect black men, even at the detriment of our own bodies. So, um, Lashana, my question for you um, is, what do you think are the barriers to Black women reporting the presence of firearms, whether it be an intimate partner violence or community violence? Thank you, Christina, for uh, calling Dr. Beth Ritchie into this space. I really, really love her work, and I've been inspired by <clears throat> her work around gender violence. I will say, in addition to the quote you just read, there's also the stigma associated with being someone who calls in the police or cooperates with the police against family members or um, other people who look like them. Um, it's not necessarily socially acceptable to call the police, even if like to a rational person, it would seem like an instinctive thing to do. But like for me, for example, my parents came from down south migrated to DC. So I'm a first generation Washingtonian. And they instilled in me to mind my business, not to talk to the police because it was dangerous for my safety, according to my parents, dangerous for my safety and the entire the safety of my entire household. And so being raised with that value, if you're an older woman now and you're being harmed by a partner or someone you know or maybe don't even know sometimes it could be stranger violence that your instinct is not to reach out to the police because that value has been instilled in you that this is not the proper thing for you to do you could be ostracized you could be beat up you could be killed your family members could be harmed and so um the barriers are also that you know sometimes these are people that we care about that people people that we know people that we grew up with family members and we don't want to see them be further harmed by the system because we know that they've already been harmed by whatever social injustices or traumas they may have experienced. So what we want most times is like resources, support, help for that individual so that they can stop the behavior. But that's not what we think we're going to get when we call in the police. So that's why we may be more reluctant. And when I say me, I just mean people who share my demographic, like where I grew up in Ward 8. And Christine, I want to add on to what Ms. Lashana just said. I just wonder if also if it's a lot of times, especially after we experienced the whole George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, like last year was such a heavy year. And it's not, it's not like our communities didn't know that calling the police is dicey, but I feel like last year, especially with the, well, even Sandra Bland, I mean, that was even before that. 
But Breonna Taylor, like I feel like the introduction of these new cases really probably deterred our community even more. Like, you know, especially if I'm innocently laying in my bed, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm calling the police to the police still present such a it's not a, like a safety measure. It's just it's an extra threat for us. And it's like, OK, are we going to likely be killed? So I just wonder too, Lashana, just add on to what you're saying. You know, newer situations that's happened in the past couple of years. Does that exacerbate our you know, thinking to say, uh-uh, we're not going that route. You know what I'm saying? Let's figure out another path because we ain't trying to die, you know, which is what a lot of us, you know, it's like, call for what? I'm, I'm likely to be killed. So I just want to add that piece. Well, and it's so true, Tiffany. You know, that is what I have heard from survivors that I that I work with, those who are experiencing battering in their violence in their homes is saying, I want the violence to stop. What I don't want to happen, I'm afraid if I did call the police, that they are going to shoot and kill my partner. And that is not what I want. I just want the violence to stop. Uh, and, and so you, the two of you have really cued it very nicely that right, we, in, in the field of domestic violence and, and how it is that we as advocates support survivors, we have really worked um, at criminalizing domestic violence um, to, to have some sort of accountability, but we also know then that that doesn't that doesn't work. That that black women, that women of color, are then not seeking out those services. And so I, I want to have this conversation um, about then how do we interrupt the violence in a different way without system involvement? And so Lashana, the question I have for you um, is if you can share with us a little bit more about how you got into violence interruption work and how you have seen it be transformational for folks and what it is that the domestic violence movement can learn, especially at the intersection of domestic violence and, and gun violence. Thank you for that question. I'll start off with when I first applied for the job as a restorative justice facilitator at the DC office of the attorney general, the application specifically asked for people who come from or live in communities that have been plagued by violence, community violence. And it also specified that you didn't need experience in restorative justice. So that attracted me to the job. They basically wanted people with lived experience to apply. They encouraged people with lived experience to apply. And when I interviewed, I interviewed with Seema Gajwani, who's, uh, she's like the uh, juvenile justice reform expert at the OAG. And when she asked me what caused me to this work, the first thing out of my mouth was that I have a criminal background and that I've been incarcerated for a crime of violence and I've served a lengthy period. And as I was talking, I was listening to myself talk and I was saying, why are you saying this right now? Do, do you know you're in abuse? It was like the first thing out of my mouth. In any case, she ended up hiring me. And so I, I, be, I was one of the first restorative justice facilitators on that team to work with adjudicated youth. I became sort of like the girls expert because unfortunately we have a lot of girls who are experiencing a lot of violence in their homes, experiencing a, a lot of trauma, and then they're causing harm in the community and being arrested for, you know, cr crimes of aggression and fighting and stabbings and things of that nature. So I was like the only female on the team, and I became like the girls' expert with the restorative justice cases. 
And I was able to really connect with the respondents, the young people who caused the harm because I was that person and the person who was harmed as well because I've also been victimized in my community. So I really got you know deep into that work that I was doing. And then Seema was charged with starting Cure the Streets and I helped her to get this program up and running. So that's how I ended up becoming the co-chief of the Violence Reduction Unit. But long story short, like my personal experiences with being exposed to violence in my home through domestic violence with my parents and my grandparents, and then being exposed to violence in my community growing up in the early 90, 90s during the crack epidemic and growing up in South DC in a vulnerable community that was just susceptible to all these ills and then ending up causing harm as a young adult going to prison for 18 years and I was released in 2011. So for me, uh, interrupting violence is all about changing those norms that make domestic violence acceptable. Because for most of the violence interrupters that I work with, when you ask them, when were they first exposed to violence, they'll say the same thing, in the home. They learned violence in the home and they began to develop like that adverse childhood experience. They became, you know, they learned they learned that behavior and then they became the perpetrators or the respondents or the defendants. So that's what caused me to this work, um, my personal background, but also like I know that I was never, I was not violent when I was growing up. In fact, I was chastised, I was beaten, <laughs> and I was um severely punished for not wanting to fight back because running was not acceptable. And I think in my parents thinking and my older siblings in their thinking, it's like, if you think you're going to run every day, that's the wrong answer because somebody's going to probably kill you. And so they forced me to adopt those violent values that in turn caused me to end up causing serious harm to someone and landing myself in prison. So I believe firmly that violence is a learned behavior and I believe it can be unlearned, I was able to transform my life and learn how to deal with conflict. And I still live in the same community where I grow up, grew up, my daughter lives there, my grandchildren live there. And I work every day with girls to help them learn to navigate that environment without resorting to violence because conflict is inevitable. The trauma is prevalent, but the, the go-to response is generally violence because the negotiation skills and the conflict resolution skills is just not up to par. Yeah, and I, I think, so I, you know, full disclosure, I've known Lashana since her days of restorative justice. We used to work together at the DC office of the attorney general. Um, and one of the things that I've really seen uh, both Lashana and her colleagues in both the restorative justice sections and with Care the Streets is really look, focusing on the culture shift that must occur when you are talking about community violence. And we know that same culture shift is the same thing that must occur when you're talking about intimate partner violence prevention and, and knowing that, you know, hitting somebody is not okay. It even goes back to when we were young and in kindergarten and you see a little boy hit a little girl and parents or other people around them are like, well, he, he must just like you. Like, he just likes you. That's why he's hitting on you. And it's like these, you have to unlearn the things um, that you learn as children in order to really make an impact and reduce the violence that that happens. So I think that it's, it, you know, the culture shift that you all are doing is amazing. And I think that goes both ways for both intimate partner violence and 
community violence. And Christine, well, I was going to say one more thing. The same thing oh, goes sure. to the abuser side of it, too. I, mm-hmm. When I was in North Pond, I'm just at 30 second piece. Um, when I was thinking about what you're saying, I was like, yeah, I mean, we think about it. And Lashana, from your story, I'm like, absolutely. And just think about the work, working even with those who we deem it are perpetrators of violence, it's like still how to unlearn. And I think sometimes in society, we feel like they are they in air quotes those people over there they're the ones that are doing all the violence that they can't unlearn it they learned it somewhere right they that they didn't wake up one day and decided to hit somebody I'm like okay they picked that up but that too can be unlearned anyway go ahead yeah well and no and christy you know we were going to have a conversation so y'all know i have something to say now too <laughs> having, having worked um for for six years with with men who were incarcerated primarily serving life sentences for having killed their intimate partners the conversations that I had with them was, was really about, um, in, you know, in order to get to, you know, accountability, because that is, as a society, what we demand. We demand that people be accountable. Um, and that has a variety of different definitions, depending upon who you speak to. But when I was speaking with these men who had taken life, so many of them had said, not as an excuse or a justification, um, but you know, people would ask, were they remorseful, or did they were they sorry for what they had done, and 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 they were. But but they also were sharing with me horrendous histories of violence that they had experienced in their own homes, and during their period of incarceration, where at least I I now foolish I can now say foolishly had had always assumed or expected that when someone went to a period of confinement or incarceration, it was to improve themselves and, and to, to have access to the resources and supports that they needed. And what I was learning from these men I was working with is that so many of them never had an opportunity to unpack or to talk about the trauma that they had experienced. And if we don't talk about that, then how can we intervene, right? How, 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 do, we, how do we see change? Um, and so, and I, I just also wanna say, I think it is a real disservice that we do as a system to, to to victims and survivors when we you know we 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 weave this tale to them that 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 when we incarcerate folks that the idea is that they will get better and that they will do better and in reality we know that that isn't isn't what happens and so we do a disservice to, to survivors because so many of them will say I just want the violence to stop I want the behavior to stop I want it to change. And if we aren't providing through the traditional mechanisms that to happen, um, we're, we're never gonna see the violence stop, which is why it is so important, the work that Tiffany and Lashana are, are doing. So I just I just wanted to, to throw that in there as well. Thank you. Thank you, my illustrious co-host for today. <laughs> <laughs> so happy to have you here with me. So uh, <laughs> Tiffany, I have a question for you. Yeah. How can we intercede for other Black women in our lives who are in danger of being killed with a firearm by their partners? Yeah, that's a great question. I initially, and you all forgive me, is just going to be the counselor in me that has to say this. I think that first you have got to take a pause and process your own experiences and trauma. As we talk, talk about interceding for other people, sometimes if we haven't dealt with our stuff, we may say stuff that is very unhealthy stuff, as in advice or things that we deem in support of may not actually be what that person may need in that moment. So I think having people really reflect and, and process what they are dealing with and seek the counseling services, removing the stigma of mental health, take care of you. And then you can absolutely in- intercede in the way that other people will need you to, um, to do so. So I'm gonna say that first. <laughs> um, I think I also wanted to say that, I think we take some time to just kind of understand that 
community violence, domestic violence, um, for black women and, and maybe even some other marginalized groups that like we're more than a statistic. I think that in some, sometimes in this world, it's like, we can just quote like, oh my God, look at what's happening with black women, right? But we don't really take time to dive into what are the complexities of that trauma and the structural violence that plays a role like in, in our experiences. So I just feel like taking time to really understand what that looks like um, outside of just a number. I think that is a place where people can intercede first to, to really get that education, see the full context of what's going on and why sometimes because of the structural violence and inequities in society like why black women are more prone to victimization right that it's not just the way we look it's oftentimes how our neighborhoods and all these other things are structured so i wish people could kind of dive more into that i think we also need to make sure that we have like safe spaces like you are a safe well we should strive to be a safe space where people can come to you and be a place to like to listen and to provide culturally sensitive resources, even if you're a friend or you're an organization, wherever, whoever you're, you know, you represent as an entity to be able to be that and to um, communicate to women, black women that, you know, in essence, what you're dealing with, like this is, you should take this very seriously, right? Um, and then being able to understand that not all social systems offer the support like I'm a big thing on um, the faith community because I know that as black women or as black communities we tend to like lean on our faith just due to historical references I'm not saying everybody y'all please know I ain't generalizing but you know a lot of us do but how oftentimes those institutions that are in our communities that we lean on for that support that they don't oftentimes have the <clears throat> proper understanding and they may not have the best you know, the, the safest approaches to how to deal with that as well. So I just feel like more people just need to educate and, and understand what are the responses? How do I need to approach and, and, and create that in, um, inviting space and also how faith communities uh, deal with if you have, you know, um, a couple or partners that are in your, uh, you know, your faith assembly who are in, involved in a domestic violence, how do you approach them? A lot of times historically people have done like couples counseling and that type of thing. It's like, wait a minute, that's not working. So I just feel like a lot of people just need to take time to understand what's gonna really work and how severe this uh, domestic violence um, portion is um, or situation is. And then another thing I was gonna say is um, how other ways that other people can intercede is you just looking at how you can advocate even for the stronger gun laws, gun control laws. Uh, firearm relinquishment, that's huge in the domestic violence space for perpetrators. Um, I know that sometimes, obviously, coming at Giffords, you know, we do a lot of work around gun control, but we definitely need more and more advocates, but we need advocates of color too to understand what that, what just what that really looks like within our communities, where the guns are coming in, the trafficking of guns. I mean, it's such a complex thing, but we definitely need more advocates to, who understand what that looks like, the complexities of DV and and guns and um, that. So I'll stop there. Those are a few things that kind of come to the surface for me on how we can all intercede. But it first starts with you making sure you're in a good space to do this work because it's heavy. Tiffany, I, you know, I just, two things that, that I just, I want to share that I'm taking away from what, what you just said. And, you know, whenever I, whenever I talk about what the statistics are as a black woman myself, when I talk about the statistics around black women and, and the violence they, they experience, I find myself immediately following up with, but it isn't because black men are more violent, mm -hmm. right? It's like this disclaimer that I feel 
that I have to say um, so that our brothers are not seen and continued um, to, to be compared to animals, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, and, and so as, as you were sharing that, that's what I was thinking about. The, the, also the conversation that we need to have that that black men, men of color are not more, are not more violent mm-hmm. um, and really unpacking some of the prevalence that we see. And then the second thought um, I have, I'm so glad that you that you brought up the the faith community and what the faith community's role potentially could be, and I just want to say, um, you know, I've in in the last in the last year since the the, the murder of of, of so many um, black men and women at the hands of the police, we have we have all been 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 very critical as we should be of of law enforcement and the criminal justice system, but let's not forget that we also need to hold our educational system accountable. We mm-hmm. need to hold our healthcare systems accountable. I am a social worker and I love being a social worker, but I have a lot of colleagues in my field who are not doing right by their clients. And so, yes, I, I want to say that this is an issue of, of a culture shift and of changing systems, but all types of systems, because people don't live right in a vacuum. And we have to be able to look at every facet as much as we can to understand where we can, um, we can intervene. Mm-hmm. Love that in a trauma-informed way. Absolutely. absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. I would love to hear from the two of you what resources exist both locally where you are and nationally for Black women to receive help if they are um, experiencing violence in their homes. I want to say too though, Alicia, one of the other things I think is underrated is like the importance of peer support. I can't tell you how many times I've had people ask me like, how do you know it works? Like, you know, people like to be able to interact with people who have their lived experience, who share their experience, who've been down, you know, that same path they've been down and have been able to get to the other side of that thing, whether it be drug abuse or incarceration, um, military, whatever. And I just feel like it should be so obvious by now, like the importance of peer support and mentoring. And so just the fact that like you said, how do you measure it? Like we measure it because we see people continuing to bond and build trust and be unified and moving in one accord. That's how we measure it. Um, but thankfully I'm not a researcher. As far as resources, I, I wanted to point out housing resources because I think that this, these is like the most important resources for a woman who's experiencing domestic violence or a woman who's returning from incarceration or trying to re- recover from substance abuse. In my mind, it's like, if you have housing, then maybe you can start thinking about all those other things that are also really important, like a job and education and maybe even regaining custody of your minor children. So Freddie's house, which is overseen by Roach Brown, is a short-term transitional house here in D.C. And then Community Family Life Services is another one, CFLS, that I really like. We partner with them a lot. Um, My nonprofit organization partners with them a lot because they provide housing to women who are returning from incarceration, homeless women, and women who have been victims of harm. And also there's DASH, the District Alliance of Safe Housing here in DC, and they provide long-term housing to women uh, in in the DC area 
who've experienced domestic violence. And then also uh, wanted to give a huge shout out to the DC Coalition Against Domestic Violence. And they're doing a lot of work in developing a curriculum to actually try to train some of our frontline workers and community leaders who care about domestic violence and feel like they can help make a difference in interrupting domestic violence. And so they've They've not just sat down and tried to come up with their own curriculum, but they've actually talked to people who live in these communities, who work in these communities to get their insight and input as they develop the curriculum. So I'm looking forward to seeing the great work that they're gonna to do to help change norms in these communities. Like one small thing we, we talked about, the co-chief of the Violence Reduction Unit, he's from New York and he was like, you know, in New York, we have signs everywhere about like, hey, please don't curse in this space because kids convene here. Like, hey, have you thought about, you know, potentially making this a safe space where kids can play without having to smell marijuana or cigarettes? He said, according to him, that signs like this can be up in different places like as a norm. And I'm like, I've never seen nothing like that in D.C. I've never seen, I know when I was, I always talk about the fact that I know we can change norms because people don't smoke in public anymore. When I was growing up, people were smoking in hospitals, in, in bars, on airplanes, in the doctor's office. They did not care. Today, if somebody light up a cigarette in a restaurant or at a doctor's office, people would look at them like they were foreign. So I know that we can change norms. We change norms with HIV. We didn't cure HIV, but we was able to, how can I say, like stabilize those numbers because we had to start doing needle exchange. We had to start talking about condoms in church. We had to teach people that you can't get HIV from loving someone and supporting someone. We had to change those norms. So I know that it can be done because I'm actually old, old enough but young enough to remember that we've done it in other areas. So long, long answer, but the resources, I think housing is a huge key and peer support and mentoring is like the best thing we can do to try to address any of these complex problems that we're facing. And I'm just gonna add on just three resources for you all too. The National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, fantastic resources. Ujima, which is a national center on violence against women in the black community. By the way, they just had a really good webinar on community violence and maternal health, what happens in creating and birthing children in an environment that's violent. Fantastic organization. And then I'm gonna add on here, Rain. that's the last one about sexual assault. I know we typically just kind of sometimes focus on just the DV part, but let's talk about the sexual assault and how that is plaguing our communities. But again, underreported often. So we don't have as much information as we could, but that's a great resource if women, black women are experiencing sexual assault. So those are some three I can offer nationally. And Alicia, if you can tell us, uh, how do we find more information about the national resource on domestic violence and firearms? Absolutely. Thank you so much. So you can learn more about the National Resource Center on Domestic Violence and Firearms and the work that we do by visiting our website at preventdvgunviolence.org. We have quite a few resources and I want, you know, a lot of our resources have been focused on firearm relinquishment uh, under the federal and state laws. And we, like I said, we are so excited to have Tiffany and Ms. Lashana engaging in these dialogue and this discussion with us because we know that we are not capturing and, and 
providing safety and protection to domestic violence victims from gun violence in the Black community um, or in other communities that are outside of the criminal and civil justice systems. And so we look forward to, to being able to continue this work together. Uh, and you can find us online, you can give us a call, email, um, but, but please do reach out and we are happy to connect you with both Tiffany and Lashana and anyone else that we know who's doing work locally in your communities. And we will also have links in the show notes for where you can find both Tiffany and Lashana and all the amazing work that they both are doing. Thank you so much for a great conversation. I feel like we covered a lot, um, but we just scratched the surface because there is so much um, that we don't talk about in the Black community. But I am just grateful for this space where we were able to really be candid and talk about how domestic violence and firearms really impact our communities across the country. So thank you ladies for this time. We appreciate you. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs> same time. No, same time. <laughs> thank you for joining us for another episode of Taking Back Control. Remember, centering the stories of marginalized communities is how we strengthen the advocacy work of preventing gender-based violence. And we all have our part to play. Talk to you next time. This project was supported by grant number 2016-TA-AX-K047, awarded by the Office on Violence Against Women, U.S. Department of Justice. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed in this program are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Department of Justice Office on Violence Against Women.